Welcome to Getting Through It, where we're here to help you get through it. I'm John Buery, and as always, I'm with aftershock predictor, Dr. Lucy Jones. When the ground shakes, thousands of people just like you turn to Dr. Jones for an explanation and a sense of calm. Since retiring from federal service in 2016, she has continued to be that voice in the aftermath of disaster through her nonprofit, the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Would you consider sponsoring this work, including this podcast, for as little as $5 a month? Because with your support, she can continue to provide this service and support for you. It's simple. Just go to patreon.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And now let's get to it. Today's episode, we're talking all about aftershocks, the only earthquakes you can predict, Lucy, and we'll get to that. We now define an aftershock as an earthquake that follows another earthquake within one fault length of that initial rupture. Well, yes, but we also have to constrain the time. So it's an earthquake that's happening after a main shock and when the rate of earthquakes is higher than it was before the main shock. Right. And Lucy, some of your most significant research was on aftershocks. How did you get into that? I mean, I know that you started your career researching foreshocks, what caused smaller earthquakes to precede larger ones. What moved you from what happened before earthquakes to what happens after earthquakes? Right. In 1985, I published a paper that was one of the simplest papers I've ever done. I divided one number into another, basically. I counted up all the earthquakes we had, and I counted up all the ones that were foreshocks, and looked at what percentage of earthquakes were foreshocks. Turned out to be about 6% in California. And I was using that as the, a baseline from which we could then say, okay, what makes something more likely to be a foreshock? Well, we never found anything that looked more likely to be a foreshock, but it turned out that 6% number was quite useful. Go a couple of years, 1987, the Whittier Narrows earthquake happened, the first big earthquake since I had moved to Pasadena. And we ended up making public statements. There's a 6% chance that this will be followed by something bigger. And of course, by a couple of days later, it was now only like 1% chance. We had said this publicly. The governor of California, Governor Bajan, had come down to look at the damage, goes out and gets photographs standing in front of a brick wall. 12 hours later, a big aftershock happens. It was 5.3, so significantly smaller than the 5.9 main shock brought down that brick wall, and the emergency managers started being criticized for having put the governor in danger, allowing him to be at a place that, you know, the brick wall fell down just a few hours later. They responded by saying, but the scientists told us there was less than a 1% chance now that we'd be having something. And of course, that's not what we had said. We had said that was of a chance of something even bigger than the first earthquake. This was quite a bit smaller. So the non-scientist had misunderstood you and then blamed you to provide cover for himself being put in a bad situation. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yes, basically. And he misunderstood because the difference between foreshocks and aftershocks. But because we had never published anything about aftershocks, we didn't say this is the chance of an aftershock. I really didn't have a way of telling him that he was wrong. And so that got me to think about it. We, in fact, know the rate at which aftershocks happen. The equations that govern it had been understood for decades, but they weren't in a form that people could really use. And I realized taking that information we already had 
and turning it into probabilities the way we had done for four shocks was going to make much more useful number. Useful for the non-scientists, right? Right, right. It was a way of conveying what we knew to others. So how did you do that? What's the process that led you to be able to do this? Okay, there are two big important characteristics of, of aftershocks that have been understood for a long time. Amori's law, which talks about the time when they happen, and what's called the Gutenberg-Richter relation that tells us about the magnitude. First, Amori's law. This was actually created back in 1890. There was a big earthquake in Japan, and it was the first time we could create a catalog of aftershocks because the very first instruments had just been created and been put out. And Professor Amori looked at this and showed that the number of aftershocks died off as one over time. So that means that like if you have, let's just arbitrarily say 100 earthquakes on day one, you're gonna have 50 earthquakes on day two, one over two, on day three, one over three, 33 earthquakes. By 100 days out, it's only one earthquake a day. So that defined how they were dropping off. And one of the reasons they could do it really clearly is it was a quiet, relatively quiet part of Japan and this was a magnitude eight earthquake that created a huge number of aftershocks. On the centenary of the creation of Omori's Law in 1990, 100 years later, Japanese seismologists showed that the number of earthquakes in that region was still following that same decay rate that had been set up back in 1890. So this tells us two things. One, aftershocks can last for a long time, but also two, how long they last depends on how quiet the region was to begin with. If you have a lot of background activity, you jump up with the main shock, but you get back to the background a lot more quickly than if it's in a really quiet area. And the second one is the Gutenberg-Richter. That's about magnitude, right? There are always more small earthquakes than big ones, right? That relationship you always talk about. Right. And we can quantify that relationship and you turn it into an equation and it's approximately 10 times more events for each unit of magnitude smaller. This means so like if you have one magnitude six, you have 10 magnitude fives and 100 magnitude fours and 1,000 magnitude threes. This is true for any grouping of earthquakes as long as it's big enough to be representative, but it's also true just for an aftershock sequence. And, and sometimes we'll get a, that slope to vary a little bit. Maybe we'll have nine times more magnitude threes than magnitude fours. Sometimes it even gets lower than that. But that's a standard rate. And that's what we can expect whenever there's an earthquake that we're going to have this sort of direct relationship. And in, fact, and in fact, aftershocks aren't releasing pressure, uh, making another earthquake less likely. But in fact, they are doing exactly what the earth does, which is has that many earthquakes at that size. Right. There just seems to be some innate characteristic of rocks and fractal dimensions and people hypothesize a lot of things. But every time we go out and count, we get the same answer. So you can predict the number of earthquakes with time and you could predict that size distribution, how often a certain size will occur. Right. But what about where they are? Can you predict where they're going to be? Well, you know, traditionally, we actually treated aftershocks uh, like they say about obscenity. You know it when you see it. Now, within the first day, it's pretty clear where the aftershocks are occurring. And that is very near where the fault broke in the main shock. You know, when we very first saw them, you just sort of, oh, there's an area. 
with time, we were able to recognize that the earthquakes were happening very near where the fault had moved in the main shock, and we could actually use the aftershocks to define how long the fault was from the main shock. But it's always very tightly concentrated that you see this really big pulse. Now, in 1992, with the Landers earthquake, we had enough seismic stations, we could see really small earthquakes across the Western US and along enough history, so we knew what the background rate was. And we could see that in fact, we had a quite significant increase in number of earthquakes much farther away from the main shock than we usually think of as that aftershock zone. We saw a clear increase for about 300 kilometers around the main shock in the first few days. We had to decide how to talk about these because the aftershocks are really clear and a defined zone. This other somewhat more diffuse. So we agreed on a rule of thumb that if we're within one fault length of the main shock fault, so a magnitude seven happens on a hundred kilometer long fault, anything within a hundred kilometers of that hundred kilometer long fault, we'll call an aftershock. And things that are farther away, which is about out to three or four times the fault length, is the only distance at which we see any significant change in rate, those we call triggered earthquakes. So taking all this insight and all you know about aftershocks, let's look at what just happened recently in Japan. So we're right now in, in February 2021. Japan just recently had a 7.3 earthquake offshore of the Tohoku region that seismologists like you are calling an aftershock to the magnitude 9 earthquake from 10 years ago in 2011. That seems like a real stretch to most folks. Right. But think about our definitions. We said as long as it's within the area that had the aftershocks originally, and it's a time when the rate is still significantly above the background rate, that becomes an aftershock. And this very clearly falls within that definition. Remember, we had that magnitude 8 in 1890, but 100 years later, we're still seeing the increase. The rate there is still definitely up. What's surprising to people is that it's such a large earthquake. You know, you'll hear people say, oh, the number and magnitude of earthquakes die off with time. And only the number dies off. That magnitude relation is absolutely constant with time. And if you've just had thousands of magnitude fours over the last 10 years, to keep that relationship steady, you actually end up expecting to have a magnitude seven at some point. So explain why this matters to the public that are not in Japan, those folks here in the US perhaps, why knowing this makes managing earthquakes easier? We are afraid of things that surprise us and we're afraid of things that we don't understand. So when you understand that these aftershocks are normal, expected, you could predict the rate at which they're going to be happening, all of that makes it easier to manage. And we need to remember that aftershocks are earthquakes. They can re-trigger the fear from the main shock. It's sort of a PTSD type response that we see in people. You've been so terrified by the main shock and then the aftershocks don't let you forget. But once you know to expect them, you can tell yourself this is normal and that makes it easier to manage the fear. Understanding what aftershocks are, how they occur, and what we can expect of them is a key way in managing this earthquake risk that we all face. We could go on much longer on this topic, but let's end right there. Until next time, I'm John Boyery with Dr. Jones and you getting through it. 
Getting Through It is a production of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Visit us online to get past shows and become a sponsor at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Our music is performed by Josh Lee and this closing music is written by our own Dr. Lucy Jones.